0: everyone, to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in technology. I'm your host, Granny Ingersoll. For those new to the show, we have three goals. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles. We want to highlight the different paths people take in their careers. And most importantly, we want to help you find your path. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at Developmentor. Today's episode is a bit of a special one in that we are going to interview not one, but two guests today. They are the co-authors of Core Kubernetes, a book from Manning Publications, who just so happens to also be the publisher of my book, Taming Text. Because this is a special episode with two guests and because they are authors of a book, we are going to do another first for the show, a giveaway. Here's how it's going to work. The first five people who email the show at kube at developmentor.com. at developmentor.com will receive a code good for one free ebook copy of the show. For those who don't want to send an email, you can get a 40% discount on all Manning books, including core Kubernetes, by using the discount code PODDEVMEN20. That's P-O-D-D-E-V-M-E-N to zero. We'll be sure to link that all up in the show notes. Okay, so on to the show. Our first guest, Chris Love, is a 20-year veteran consultant who started his career early by leaving school and then, if my notes are correct, running the engineering and radio production departments at his first company before going on to start his own consulting firm, which he has been successfully running for 20-plus years now. His partner in crime on the book is Jay Vias, who sits in contrast a bit to Chris in that he did an undergrad in math, a master's in comp sci, and a PhD in bioinformatics before going on to work in a variety of software engineering roles at companies like Yukon Health, Red Hat, Synopsys, and VMware. Please welcome to the show Chris Love and Jay Bias. Chris Jay, great to have you here.
1: Absolutely. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time
2: having us on. Likewise. Thanks, Grant.
0: Yeah, and why don't we get started by having each of you give a quick intro to yourself and your career, and Chris, why don't we just start off with you, and then we'll have Jay jump in after that.
1: Like you said, started off actually with dropping out of school. It was interesting. During school, I figured out that I had ADHD really seriously, and figured out that sitting in engineering classes wasn't really my cup of tea. I don't have an auditory learning style, I have both visual and kinesthetic, so determined pretty quick that writing code and being in an industry and talking with people and seeing how people do stuff is really key to my fundamentals and learning. From there, as you mentioned, went on to consulting, actually started in the call center. Um, I don't know if you remember CompuServe back in the day, but started a call center helping people with their modem issues. Yeah, that's good old uh, 2600 baud modems. There we go. And worked through many different consulting opportunities. Unlike Jay, as you mentioned, who is really more classical software engineer, architect, designer, you know, open source contributor. I followed a meandering path of working on you know, consulting from working on ad engines back in the day. And as you mentioned, I was a, worked with a company called Westwind Media and was actually a, a production director for digital content meaning that I managed radio staff. I managed also the engineering aspects of it. It was a startup back in the day and moved to a company called CNM Consulting. We rebranded into LionCube. And last time I checked probably on like my sixth iteration of specialty. And what I mean by that, you know, we've moved through web development. We've done solo work with service architecture. Now, of course, we're into microservices and Kubernetes. And now I've taken a, you know, more of a leadership role in terms of sales and being a C-level.
0: Yeah, I guess I should have done a little bit more homework there on on the consulting firm. So that's great to hear. And I definitely want to delve into that. But how about we switch gears? And Jay, why don't you fill us in a little bit on your path?
2: I, uh, yeah, like you said, I kind of went down the science path. I wanted to do the whole like writing software to like cure diseases and find out how cancer works and stuff. I thought that was really interesting. I thought like physical chemistry and stuff and building algorithms around that would be cool. You know, when I went into that whole world, the first thing I realized was data was a mess. And people wanted to pay me a whole lot more money to clean up data problems than they did. To work on anything related to biology or medicine, all the money's in ads, right? So, and you know, I'm in my mid 20s by the time I finished my, you know, my PhD and having to build basically like Hadoop clusters from scratch in the lab and stuff, and federate MySQL clusters and stuff to get genomic data integrated. Turned out that there's a startup called Peer Index, later acquired by Brandwatch. Which really needed that because they are trying to suck in the whole Twitter feed. And remember that when that was a big deal in the early 2000s or mid 2000s, I flew out to London with basically no money, and my first kind of consulting job to just go hack on Java Hadoop stuff for a guy named Stanford Dicker. You know, I never was really trained doing practical Linux administration stuff the way Chris was, right? But I kind of had to learn it because that was when you made the transition from you can't just do Java anymore. You have to understand Linux. You have to understand distributed stuff, uh, you know, it was when the cloud was really taking off. And uh, so I had to start running Hadoop clusters and installing things on hundreds of nodes and Elastic Map Reduce at large scales. And that kind of transitioned me into being a guy who built, you know, Java bioinformatics Integration, data integration type applications to like a generic kind of Linux distributed systems engineer. And I never looked back because it just turned out that there was a lot more money in that than there is in doing science. So that's how I ended up where I am. From there, I went on to Red Hat because they wanted to get into big data. And they pretty rapidly pivoted over to Kubernetes as the main focus for distributed systems kind of core people on my team. That's how I kind of rebased my whole career on. On Kubernetes, from there on, and then Black Duck, we got acquired by Synopsys, and uh, some other Kubernetes startups, Platform Nine, and now finally over at over at VMware, just working on core Kubernetes stuff.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. And you know, we had Kelsey Hightower on earlier on the show. So our guests are probably a little bit familiar with Kubernetes. But of course, as you guys are authors of the book, we're gonna dive into that here in a minute. But I'd really like to drill in on this education contrast a a little bit. You know, Chris, uh, in your email, you said to me, you have two people with very different career paths. Uh, You said you you don't have the degree and Jay has the PhD. And I wanna set up a little bit of a contrast here because I want our listeners to kind of think through, like, hey, what are the different trade-offs? here and I'm doing that on purpose not so much to set up a comparison for you two, but I I think it shows like you both have kind of come together later in very successful ways but you took very different paths so Jay why don't you start a little bit on like why go get all the degrees if you will right like where were you in life at that point that you said yeah I want to go down that PhD route? that's a pretty big time commitment I think the most
2: really interesting computer science has changed right like Back in 2004, being a computer scientist, being a software engineer is not what it is in 2019, 2020. And there's so much interesting, innovative, open source stuff that you can get involved with now. I don't know if I would go get a PhD in 2020. I might though. And there's one reason why. You really get to think about problems very deeply for a very long period of time when you're getting a PhD. And I think that's a lot of fun. And I think that's what a lot of programmers I know... Really lament is that they're constantly getting switched from one project that's half baked to another and this and that. They never have time to build their own stuff. You know, it's what every engineer complains about. Well, go to grad school because you'll have five years to work on the same stupid problem for as long as you want. You know, I think that was what I liked about it. Right. That's the only thing about it that I would say is a good reason to go do it again. But as far as being able to do your own work and be creative and get stuff out there the way you can do that in grad school. I think nowadays as a programmer, you can do that without going to school. That's my take on it.
0: I think you just convinced me to never go get a PhD because I like doing so many different things. Now, Chris, you know to contrast a little bit, and you said something really interesting to me in your intro in that you figured out you were a different kind of learner while you were in school. How did that come to you? That's a fantastic insight that I think a lot of us don't realize about how we engage in the world,
1: right? Yeah, and, and let me throw out one other reason uh, first that you're, you'd want to work on your PhD, and that's you want to teach. And we're definitely, one of the main challenges about computer science and the changes that it's gone through is it's really a challenging beast to teach, and we definitely need more folks in, in college. And let me preface this, if you can get through school, if you can manage to get a technical degree from a two-year college, or community college two-year degree, an associates, or if you manage to get through school for four years or five years or six nowadays, I definitely encourage you to look at doing that. So, you know, if you look at my background, my uncle is a entrepreneur, my dad's an entrepreneur, of course, now I'm an entrepreneur. So that's part of what shaped, you know, really from a psyche standpoint, but also if you look from a personality standpoint, and I'm gonna go way off of software engineering, if you look from a personality standpoint, and this is probably why Jay and I can actually write a book, we are two personality-wise very different people. you know. And from a learning perspective, I, I'm not sure what Jay's learning traits are, but there's basically three different learning patterns. And I might be missing one here. Visual, auditory, kinesthetic. And what I mean by kinesthetic, if you're not familiar with it, is many people learn through doing. Visual, of course, is you are able to see somebody do something and or it's part of an aspect in reading, but you need more diagrams so you can visually look and understand a topic. And the third one is auditory. And most people think that, you know, there's an aspect of auditory where, you know, you're able to listen to something to learn, but also you're able to read and you hear your own voice when you read and you're able to enforce that. One of the interesting side hobbies I have is I, you know, I'm not doing it as much as I'd like to, is I teach martial arts. And that's actually where I learned this stuff. We actually go through a school to learn more about teaching, more about martial arts. And martial arts is just as complicated to learn as computer science. Back in 1991, when I started school, you know, and there's a lot of talk right now about mental health. In our industry as well, um, I'll admit that I was diagnosed with, you know, ADHD, as well as manic depression. You know, being in school at that point where I was in my life, it really wasn't healthy. It wasn't a healthy environment, and was I wouldn't say that the professors or anybody else created that environment, but it's not an environment where I succeed best. You know, I succeed best by hacking on some open source. Jay talked about wanting to think about you know, a topic for five years, work on a topic for five years. That is not what my personality deems as necessary. I am on longer or when I was engaged in contracts and my people are on longer contracts. So we're working with, you know, somebody over a year, but typically you're solving different problems, you know, every two weeks or so Uh, DevOps, you know, we're we're in pure DevOps. And that's definitely the type of industry where you bounce around a bit. If you're not able to switch gears pretty quick, learn on the fly, you don't probably want to be in the type of industry that we're in, or that I'm at least in, in terms of consulting. And really, I think that's where I'm a good fit for it. Now Jay, on the other hand, he's an amazing engineer, amazing software engineer, writes some incredible code. You focused on Calico recently with networking with VMware, you know, and that took you, you know, I think it was a good couple weeks where you're just coming up to speed on that. Is that fair, Jay?
2: yeah it was that was new for me,
1: yeah that would be incredibly painful for me to spend two weeks just learning a single topic
2: <laughs> yeah I mean it's two two or three months now, and I will say on the spectrum of like people that like didactic learning to people that hate it, I mean, as far as most people that went to grad school goes, I'm about as close to chris as as you could get, right like I don't like to read for me, I will say grad school was writing a whole bunch of computer programs to parse through protein sequences and integrate really complicated tools that other people had spent five years building. I had something that was very software-like and very hacky, and I had tons of papers, like, you know, a ridiculous amount of publications, but they were all me writing code to solve a problem that was basically already solved. So grad school was a cakewalk for me because I was the only person there that could program, and I was more of a gun for hire. So I will say one thing with the didactic learning is it's worse in like the college than it is as you get into grad school. Cause once you get into grad school, it's like a business. If you can provide value, then it doesn't matter how you provide that value. You're going to eventually get a PhD. Whereas in, in undergrad, it's not about providing value. It's about jumping through these stupid hoops that put people put up. And if you can tolerate the undergrad thing, which I barely graduated college. Cause I'm similar to Chris that way. I, I hate sitting there and reading a book. But I did find that, you know, I was able to get into grad school in a couple of places. And one of them was this joint bioinformatics computer science program over at Rensselaer. So the fact is, if I had better grades in college, maybe I would have just gone off and not gone into bioinformatics. You know? So decisions you make in life a lot of times are influenced by your own screw ups as much as they are <laughs> influenced by like what you're passionate about. Right?
0: That's actually one of the themes I, I see so often on this show is like these serendipitous moments where it feels like a screw up in the moment. And then later when you look back and you're like, wow, that was the best thing to ever happen to me. So
2: Yeah, I mean, for me to get into grad school was computer science hybrid bioinformatics program at Rensselaer uh, in Hartford, Connecticut, joined with the program in Troy, New York. If I had good enough grades to get in the computer science program over at Harvard, I probably would have just gone and done that and been like anybody else. You know what I
0: mean? Chris, you were going to jump in there. Yeah, I just want to bring up one point is that
1: if you're in college... And you're having challenges getting through school, reach out to your faculty. There's definitely some good programs in terms of mental health and other help you can reach out and get. You know, once I started getting help, you know, my, in here I'll I'll give you an example. You know, I have text anxiety, which is not unusual with folks with with my diagnosis. Once I started getting help, you know, I went from a C in differential equations and got out with an A-minus. But really what I ran into was what Jay said is getting through the undergraduate at the time, it just, you know, tore apart my life and I made the tough decision to drop out. So, you know, definitely the people around me that were able to support me in that decision was, was super important. And then I was able to meander a bit through different jobs and you brought up learning from what people consider to be failures. I don't think we ever have failures. You know, that's just when my brain thinks about it. I've tried to kind of position it that we have learning opportunities. And they also often are really painful, but they're really important. And I would say the best learning opportunities I had when I've gotten fired. A lot of folks that have been really successful talked about that, that you learn so much long term about getting fired and you understand better, you know, how to interact
0: within the workplace.
2: And you don't have to get fired. You can just piss somebody off. That's another way to learn stuff.
0: There's a lot of negative examples going on here, too, guys. I mean, I would love to, <laughs> but but it's not negative. Here's the thing: is that, that we're humans. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not trying to paint it like that, but you know, like, hey, we're we're pissing people off, things like that. I mean, I I know totally what you're saying. It, it makes perfect sense to me. You know, I'd, I'd love to hear like how then. You know, as you've kind of developed out through your careers, like, how does this stuff all start to come together for you now as you write this book? I mean, I guess the first question is, like, how did you guys meet? And then how did that lead to the book? You'll laugh at
1: this. Jay and I actually hadn't physically met till last year in the fall, where I had an opportunity on a, on a sales call to go out to Boston. How long has it been three years that we've been involved together in the Kubernetes community?
2: Yeah, probably three or four years. Yeah, I mean it
1: was pretty early on. I think we ran into each other working on storage in terms of with the AWS that one of the Kubernetes versions was having some challenges with AWS storage. So I know I worked with another Red Hat engineer on that and you guys were fixing a bunch of stuff. Is that I think that's where we met.
2: It was a Cassandra thing. So you were running Cassandra. I this was when there was a lot of confusion about stateful sets and all that and stateful sets weren't out yet i think they were called pet sets at the time but maybe they still weren't even out yet and i still think one of the coolest things i've ever seen was brendan burns first example his christmas vacation cassandra implementation that used the kubernetes api to to seed seed nodes right it was the first time i really understood what cloud native really meant chris was working on this stuff and i came from the apache world right so i was doing Hadoop right out of college and or right out of grad school and i you know i was you know, working on Hadoop and Big Top and other things in the ASF, which I forgot to mention is a huge part of my my development, right? The ASF. I have to thank them so much for everything they've done to make it fun to be an open source. But anyways, Chris was doing Cassandra stuff. And so we started talking about that because my first thing on Kubernetes was getting Spark and Cassandra to work. And I don't know, someone was paying you a lot of money to do that. And uh, I don't know. I hope, did it ever work out? I don't even remember.
1: And I'm actually trying to find the blog post about it so i can actually I'll, I'll come up with his name in a in a moment but the way i got into the kubernetes organization was actually submitting java code uh, to a golang code base so before previous to pet sets and stateful sets you weren't able to have the correct structure for cassandra to behave or to be able to look up its peers and definitely got into that and um, i was brought in to do a, a five-minute demo for a talk, which was, you know, Google let me spin up a 1,000 nodes of Cassandra on a cluster just for, you know, five-minute talk, and then I was able to talk about it. So, yeah, I think we ran into something working through, you know, how, you know, back in the day, they're called pet sets, pet sets are not mounting volumes correctly or something like that, I forget, but, yeah, it's been an interesting journey, and then, Jay, did you reach out to me about a year ago? To work on the book?
2: Yeah, so it'd been a while and I'd been talking to O'Reilly and Manning both about a Kubernetes book. And I'd been out of upstream and I was kind of focusing a little more on the business side of things, moving businesses over to Kubernetes and SaaS's and stuff. And I was starting to realize that people just don't understand how it works. And it's a huge problem because you know, you have IT people that are asking whether Kubernetes is going to run on this infrastructure or that infrastructure, and they don't understand how to frame the questions. And so I was like, well, I'm working on this book, and it's totally really hard, and I'm tired, and I need someone to help me. And Chris just came to mind because the CEO at Black Duck had left, and he was actually gone off to a company called ReactiveOps.
1: Yeah, they rebranded to Fairwind, And
2: he left, and I was talking to him about his new company, and one of the things I noticed when I was talking to him about the company was that they were using COPS all over the place. Chris is, you know, one of the major committers to COPS, which is kind of one of the most popular Kubernetes installation tools out there. And uh, I was like, you know what? This is who I need. i got to find Chris because he can help me round this thing out. He's been using this at so many businesses. So I tracked him down and I was stalking him and I was like, please just help me finish this. And he was like, I need to sleep on it for a couple of days. I was like, okay, fine. And then he said he'd help me finish the book. So I was like, okay, cool. Thanks.
0: I never met the co-founders of my company. We met in via the Apache Software Foundation back in the day. And we had never met until our very first company meeting. And then uh, just like the both of you with my book, I reached this point where I'm like, I can't write this anymore by myself, I need help. It's just so interesting to hear kind of these same journeys. You both gave a bunch of kind of inside baseball around Kubernetes there. And, and I would love to like take a step back and for our listeners, explain a little bit more on what Kubernetes does in, in kind of layperson speak so that we can set the stage for, yeah, why they might care to use it, why uh, this might be an area that they want to go spend more time and their career on?
1: Kubernetes, of course, was open sourced by Google close to six years ago. And yeah. it sits in, a you know, everybody says it's container orchestration. And the folks that I'm talking to that have, aren't accustomed to it, and it's, it's gained a lot of popularity in the space. So if you're a CIO and haven't heard the word Kubernetes or a DevOps person and haven't heard the word Kubernetes, it, it would be pretty surprising to me. But it goes back to containers and Google's been running containers in production for 15, 17 years now. And Docker really you know, legitimized and created the developer tool base where developers understand or use containers and understand containers really at a better level. And using containers, of course, like great new technology, right, causes another whole myriad of, of technical problems. Tim Hawkins, I was talking to him, he's one of the great co-founders of Kubernetes, he was talking about how systems are just hard to scale and hard to manage. There's a system internally with, with Google that's called Borg, and it's it's migrated also to Omega, and that was a system that they based Kubernetes on. Google, I don't know the behind the scenes stories of why Google actually open sourced Kubernetes, but in a nutshell, you have a container, you have an API layer, then with Kubernetes, your container can get deployed out to Kubernetes. And you you gain all these benefits, right? It's definitely, it's a complicated beast. I won't say that it's not a complicated beast. We work with complicated distributed systems and that's why we have careers. But we're able to deploy a container out. You've got fault tolerance, if your application will, you know, play well with Kubernetes and actually be fault tolerant. You've got storage, load balancers, myriad, of you know security, you know now you have monitoring within restarts. You have a whole life cycle that you now have for what's called a pod, which is a collection of containers. And you've got different API archetypes that you can use in terms of what type of application you have. So that's actually what the first chapter of our book actually delves into. And in terms of popularity, and I'll say this and probably be a bit, be a bit controversial, but there's two other software packages that seem seen gain the traction that Kubernetes has. One is Oracle. Back in the day, everybody had their Oracle database. You know, if you're in the 2000s, 2002, 2004, a lot of people are running Oracle. I still have Oracle 8 and 7 books sitting on the bookshelf. They're great for, you know, putting monitors at the right position now because we won't, won't touch those books anymore. There's another one, which is VMware's ESX server, and it's just gained true market domination of the space that it's in and Kubernetes is the same way. Uh, There's been some talk about, you know, forecasting how long Kubernetes will live. And of course that's, you know, somebody's just guessing. It's an educated guess because, you know, they're one of the other core contributors to Kubernetes and they're talking about 30 years it's going to be around
2: which is a really long life cycle for software. Everybody's kind of running containers in one way or another now. And yeah, Kubernetes gives you the container thing, but the thing to me as a developer, right? So as a user, I think that's kind of the number one thing is it's you know it's gonna be common currency for how people deploy things at some level because of the traction. But outside the traction, if you understand Kubernetes as a developer, as an engineer, then you understand how any cloud works, right? So Kubernetes takes all the cloud-specific stuff, like Amazon's Route 53, right? And then you've got GCP and you've got whatever they call, TCP load balancers, you know, if there's a Google-specific way to make those, right? And um, then you go, Amazon's got EBS volumes and Amazon's got, I don't know what they've got for etcd, but I guess people use Dynamo or something, right? But they've got all these tools, right? That are proprietary that serve these individual functions. Understanding Kubernetes gives you a gen, it, like you learn all those concepts in a very generic way that applies to any problem you're working on. Whether or not you're even using Kubernetes, you actually will truly really understand how to really build distributed systems properly, right? Whether it's learning how the API server leans on etcd, whether it's understanding how the networking model works and how node ports do load balancing using IP tables, whether it's looking at persistent volumes and persistent volume claims and understanding how storage is recycled. All those things are problems that you'll work on in any cloud. If you learn it from a Kubernetes perspective, then you'll be able to actually solve these problems in any cloud, um, in any proprietary. If you learn all this stuff as an Amazon person, then every time you need a consistent key value store, you're gonna be thinking, oh, Google doesn't have Dynamo, so I can't do this. or Alibaba doesn't have Route 53, so I don't know how to do DNS or something like that. You know what I mean? It's a truly open source cloud, right? That has traction to the point that, you know, it's just going to be the common currency for how people talk about cloud computing moving forward, I think.
1: I would say it's not an open source cloud, I'd frame it in a different way, Jay, because you're talking also about VMware, you're talking about bare metal. It's an abstraction of your compute. And as software engineers and DevOps people and IT people, we like abstractions. Because that brings in a common theme of management. It brings in a common theme of reliability scaling. If you're in Azure or you're in AWS or you have a storage you know, solution by EMC, you're mounting a volume with a persistent volume and a persistent volume claim. It doesn't matter what environment you're in. You know, I guess you, you're running on Raspberry Pi, I don't think there's a storage solution for Raspberry Pi. You know, IoT devices are, you know, run on Raspberry Pi. And that's the other thing that Jay, you brought up, which is really good, is that the amount of vendors that are contributing to the project and have really taken hold and, you know, adopted the project are huge. You've got, of course, Google's founder, you've got Red Hat, which is, you know, now moving towards being IBM. You've got Microsoft, you've got Alibaba, VMware. VMware is actually a huge contributor to Kubernetes now. They've really stepped it up in terms of kind of caching it all in. The next release of VMware, which is at least seven, so is going to have Kubernetes in it. So if you're a, a VMware ESX user, surprise, surprise, you're going to be installing Kubernetes. So that's looking at 20,000 plus users of ESX are automatically going to be installing Kubernetes. So if you're in the DevOps space and in container space, you've got choices to make. There's awesome solutions out there as well. Uh, Nomad's definitely gaining popularity. There's definitely an opportunity for you to learn, you know, amazing distributed system, as Jay's talking about. And and frankly, be employed by it. Our jobs help us put food on the table for our families. So,
0: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, for our listeners, you know, again, painting another abstraction here is like this idea that, you know, as we build more and more scalable systems, you know, you kind of need to be able to move up the stack to to work on harder things. And Kubernetes forms this substrate layer that allows you to not have to think as much. You still have to think about it, but not as much about all the really low level moving parts of large scale distributed systems. I grew up building distributed systems and we had to do everything by hand. And now all of a sudden Kubernetes comes along and and yeah, there's still stuff to do there, but like, you don't have to think as much about, oh, what happens if this machine fails? I can define a policy, I can design an approach that says, okay, well, move it over here, move this workload there. Like, those are things you all had to do by hand, you know, 20 years ago. So if you're in the process of writing this book, I believe it's in early access right now, right? Mm-hmm. who's the target audience for this and and what's your goal what somebody reads this book what are they going to walk away with as the key things they're going to learn
2: about the last topic I just want to say it's so true what you said I'm a pmc on a project called Apache big top which was literally built to tame the complexity of installing Hadoop pig hive solar and all the other stuff that you needed for big data at apachecon a year ago I was like look, everybody, we should just replace this entire project with a few YAML files, and here's how to do it. And that's what Kubernetes brings to the table, right? All the installation tooling, all that puppet nonsense that you're doing, you just don't need any of it anymore. Yeah, so to me, it's storage and networking are the hard parts, um, and that's what I wrote the book for myself because I I needed to learn more about that stuff. And as a Kubernetes contributor, I, I still don't understand it, really, and I've been working on Kube for a long time.
1: So in terms of a target audience, Kubernetes in Action, I'll, I'll throw out a another Manning book out there, it is an incredibly popular book. It is focused on you need to learn Kubernetes. Our book is taking the next step in terms of your, and I'll go back to college analogy, you're now an operator, you're now a developer, you need to understand the internals. And admittedly, not everybody needs to understand the material internals. You know, people need to understand what deployment is and how to, you know, include Say some storage with it, security, et cetera, right? And that's really what Kubernetes in action does. And we've seen this in terms of trends with books. There's high-level books written, and it's not a common practice right now to write a full-length book in many ways. You know, many people are writing 100 pages. So our book is really taking the next step. It's a longer book. It's looking at very complex topics like networking, for instance, c providers how the cyber ranges are built. So you're really looking at topics that are like 200 level, 300 level, possibly 400 level topics within, you know, if you're looking at Kubernetes classes within college. So really it's the next step in your education evolution in terms of understanding Kubernetes. There's a very small group of maintainers and tooling builders within the Kubernetes community that actually understands these topics really well. And we just wanted to take you know, the knowledge that we have and through interviewing other people, for instance, I got to interview Don Chen about Kublet. Like Kublet is one of the basic components of Kubernetes. And I think I did a search within one of the Git repos, which has documents. And it came back with, I think, 33 pages of results mentioning the word Kublet. Or really, if you even talk to some of the contributors and say, "Okay, give me an example of what Kublet does," like really good rundown, they'll be like, uh, "Sure," you know, unless they've actually touched a lot of the Kublet source code, and that's the type of information that we're trying to disseminate in the book. Networking is another one. Is Jay mentioned storage is another one. You know, C groups. All, all these topics we're covering. A very
2: quick example to that effect, Chris has seen more outages in production than I have, but I had an outage when I was over at Black Duck, right? You know, th- their whole goal was, let's move the entire business over to SaaS, right? So we can get bought. We had a SaaS and we had hundreds of customers running on it. And I remember we had an outage and it was on Google and we were paying Google $200,000 a year or whatever, you know, for our cluster. and. It was related to the kube proxy running out of cpu at that time i didn't really know the difference between the kube proxy and a cni provider right now i do from having to go through this book and it would have been a lot easier to triage that problem if i knew the difference in the networking stack i I wasn't going to go in and fix google's cloud i mean it was just a matter of being able to understand how to make decisions about running kubernetes Clusters about things that you want to buy, about things that you shouldn't buy. That's the thing that getting a glimpse into the internals gives you. It's like automata theory for computer science. You never use it, but every once in a while you can say finite state machine, and and then suddenly everybody has to agree with you because you just said finite state machine. The
1: one thing that I look at from an operation standpoint is yes, you may not need to know what a C group is. You're not developing at the kernel level. You don't need to understand that you know you've got network C groups, you've got your process C groups. But if you start having challenges with Kubernetes, that knowledge is going to assist you at 2 a.m. in the morning, right? Hopefully, you're just coordinating the node, and you don't have a whole cluster that's going upside down on you. If you understand and have that knowledge, if you understand how DNS is being used, if you understand you know what's going on with pod IPs, if you understand the networking. And we might not be able to read through the IP tables rules, but you at least have an understanding of, okay, these IP table rules are going on. Let's reach out to the community or, you know, another engineer within our organization who really understands IP tables. But it gives you a basis understanding of, yes, IP tables are being used. Here's the backbone of what IP tables does, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that understanding has helped me diagnose, you know, challenges in production, challenges in development, you know consistently. And we're really lucky to have the group of engineers that we've been talking with and the folks in the community that have been open just to schedule an hour of their time and go through the content that we're writing about. I think the community as a whole understands that this content is not documented. Like Literally, we have code snippets. That's how we're doing documentation of like how CNI works and how storage works. We understand where the heck that code lives you know, it's not in the base documentation.
2: Dim's made a point about this. Jay, if we do this thing right, nobody's going to know what Kubernetes is, right? And that's our goal, right? As a Kubernetes engineer, like, my goal is for this thing to, to be embraced by everybody, you know, because selfishly, right? The only way that's going to happen is if we kind of take a step back and we take all the stuff that we know after six years of breaking it and fixing it. And we find new ways to continuously share this information with other people. And the CNCF has done a better job of doing that than, I think they did a lot better of a job of doing it than we did in the Hadoop community, for sure. Having lived through Hadoop kind of falling apart and getting replaced by Spark overnight, I don't want to live through that again in my next open source, big open source project. And I know that the way to do that is to really make sure that everybody is a part of this. Everybody understands it. Everybody has the opportunity to learn more about it.
0: Well, and Hadoop fell apart, in my opinion, because the companies spent too much time fighting with each other instead of actually fixing the software. So I want to bring this back guys a little bit because I mean, there's, there's a lot of really deep stuff here. And so like for our listeners, this is one of those things where it's like, if you're looking at your career and you really love deep dive stuff and you want to get in the internals, this is where it's at. Right. Like whether it's Kube or, or similar tech, but like these large scale distributed systems, if you love those kinds of problems, like dig in deep here. I want to pick up on something. That, and, and actually, I think ties back to our earlier conversation. Jay, you hit on this like you started writing the book because you needed to learn it. And it's that yet another way of learning, which is teaching to learn. And so I'm curious, then, how do you two work together on the book? right? How do you decide who does what? And kind of what are the dynamics of having co-authors? Because writing a book is hard. Writing a book with another person is more than twice as hard, but also twice as good.
2: Chris is really good at making sure that we're on track. He has more experience with more customers than I'll ever have. So he can quickly look at something and say, Jay, nope, this is never going to make sense to anybody. Or like, why don't we have a chapter on service mesh? And I'll be like, well, I think service mesh is stupid. And he'll be like, it doesn't matter. He sees around those blind spots that I don't see as somebody who's kind of like in the weeds. I really needed that because otherwise I would just spend all day like writing stupid paragraphs about weird stuff that I saw at work. And we've gotten into
1: a really good rhythm. I think initially it was, you know, Jay writing a bunch of content, I'll take a chapter on, I'll write a bunch of content. We actually got into, as soon as we were accepted, by Manning as a publisher, you know, we're writing an ASCII doc. So, you know, we're writing in a very technical way. We're also using GitLab issues. So we fell back to the way that we kind of have a workflow. Anyways, we've been talking about Jay and I's personalities are very different. Jay was kind enough to say, hey, you get to do all the project management. I'm like, thanks Jay. Because <laughs> I would say that I'm not a project manager. It's something I'm accustomed to. I'm continuously working with project managers. And we've just gotten into a really good rhythm in terms of I handle project management, you know, I'm handling all the marketing, you know, thank you for bringing us on this podcast to kind of share this opportunity with the book. You know, there's a lot of book aspects. I'm not sure people understand walking into it for the first time, you know, diagrams did you understand exactly how many diagrams and how many examples you're going to be writing within a book? Jay took a look at my diagrams. I think the, the words were, dude, I think you're doing the rest of the diagrams.
2: Yeah, he's ridiculous. Chris wrote a lot too. I just wound up like getting really weird about getting these certain details in a certain OCD way. And, and so then I kind of started to rewrite some of his stuff, that, like so much of the scaffolds of the stuff that he wrote was super important and I had to keep all that content because the content that he came up with was super important.
1: Well, and talking about that, we're still working through that conflict because I don't think we've had downright arguments, but we definitely have had some challenging agreements to go through because we're still trying to figure out exactly how to teach networking. It's one of the most complex topics within Kubernetes. I wrote the chapter you know, right after KubeCon in Europe and I think you totally reworked the chapter. And I'm like, oh, this is not understandable to me. Between our two learning styles, I think we were going to create a really good content in terms of, okay, this is something that people from a wide range will be able to understand. And we're taking on some topics that are ridiculously hard.
2: Yeah, the trick is you got to find someone that you trust because, you know, we don't agree with each other on everything, but we trust each other. And that's the thing. And if one of us feels like, something is better done by the other we just say it
0: well and it's super clear like you guys are almost completing each other's sentences which is the sign of a really good partnership which is fantastic i'm smiling ear to ear as you guys are describing this process because when i was writing my book it was oh you're way better at the visuals than i am and and oh you're better at this part and like working through with somebody else you know but you don't really know to figure out what works is is fantastic. So really appreciate that. And Chris, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'll give you a last thought there.
1: And it goes back to really, you know, lack of ego. You want to talk about, you know, let me loop this back to career, right? Lack of ego and communication skills and humility and empathy are all topics right now that are being talked talked in in the software industry. If you go into software engineering school, please take communications class as an elective. Maybe even psychology class as an elective. Because working in software industry, yes, you get to sit in front of a computer screen and hack on code. But the greatest achievements that you'll have is through a collaboration.
2: Yeah, and hang out with people in college too, right? Because so many programmers that I meet are real smart. And you can't just hang out and smoke pot with them. Hang out, like, you know what I mean? Because so much of building stuff with somebody is just being able to hang out with them, right? I mean, that's how presidents get elected. Someone like me, I'm not the smartest software engineer in the entire world. Chris gives me a lot of credit. But people kind of like to hang out with me. So sometimes, and Chris is the same way, right? He can just get on the phone with somebody and figure things out organically because he's happy to talk to people and hang out with them and that's important
0: yeah and not just software people either right like you both hit on so many really key things there in career development is that learning to communicate that's an ongoing theme in this show it's been miraculous in my own career and then this get different perspectives learn from others so let's kind of bring that all together here as we head into the finish line and and i would love for both of you you know the show's called development or it has mentor right in the name on purpose a couple minutes each of you like what's your best career advice for somebody who wants to go down a similar path who really wants to dig in hard on these really deep problems like what you two have done Let's uh, Jay, let's start with you and then
2: Chris will come to you. Have lots and lots of fun. Make everything you do fun. Find a way to make stuff fun. That's all that matters for me. There's always some way you can make any project fun and do that do your best at making it fun and everything else falls into place.
0: That's fantastic. Chris, over to you. So to me, it comes back to working on yourself.
1: I'll talk about a book, which is How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's a book about pure communication skills. You know, remembering somebody's name, you know, look at books that talk about not interrupting each other, active listening, et cetera, et cetera. Moving into the sales world, you know, I used to be in leadership role as well as in the Kubernetes community. It was a very eye-opening experience. I need to understand how to write well as well as communicate with people. Also, be a little bit stubborn in terms of solving problems. I think one of my best personality traits is, a little bit of stubbornness where people are like, yeah, we can't fix that. Yeah, we don't know how to diagnose it. No, come on. We're we're engineers. Go get some help and just dig into, you know, don't well, stop.
2: That's biologically important. I'll get on that later, but I'll let you finish.
1: You know, in terms of have fun, so many people are in jobs that they don't enjoy. That to me just is, you know, at least in the United States or other you know countries where you have the opportunities, don't stay stagnant in that. If you want to work on a software project, you know, get into some open source. If you want to get into product development, start an open source or a closed source project, and look at starting a company. You know, the opportunities are out there. Yes, it's very different roles, but also, you know, if you don't have a team around you, look at an opportunity with another company for that, and be aware of that. Right? Be aware that you need to find a community that you prosper in. And there's a lot of different types of communities that within, you know, our software consulting or, you know, operations, whatever aspect of the industry you get into that you can really prosper in.
2: Your brain has gray matter and white matter. Okay. And when Chris says dig into something, the amount of gray matter in your brain, the more of that you have, the better you are at doing deep work and Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and all these things are decreasing people's ability to do deep work and work on deep problems. Digging into a problem and pushing to the very end to solve a hard problem, even if it's a stupid problem that should never have been solved to begin with, develops that part of your brain. And that's like an anatomical thing. The actual physical like structure of how neurons in your brain work. And so solve hard problems. It doesn't matter what the problems are, right? Play a really hard video game if you don't want to learn how to program. And, but that goes back to having fun because the only way you can work on something for four or five hours is if you find a way to have fun doing it. And when you work on something for four or five hours, it develops those parts of your brain that are the biggest differentiators I think nowadays in this sort of flighty kind of world that we live in. Five years, 10 years from now, people aren't going to be able to focus for <laughs> more than like 10 minutes on a problem. And if you can be that that person, you're you're going to be a superstar. So have fun and dig deep into
0: whatever you're doing (laughs) you guys both just crystallized so many things you know first off I want to go back to the how to win friends book uh Chris I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because that was one of those books that for a long time I was like oh it's just cheesy you know like look at the title and, and then I actually read it I always thought oh I'm not good at people and it turns out I just needed to reframe it and that book helped me reframe and then you know you go read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, and and they're classics for a reason. Jay, I love tying that back to what you just said, this bringing forward the fun and working on hard problems. I remember early on in my career, I was at this point where it's like, I could go take this job that was kind of just vanilla, or I could go take the hard job. And the hard job paid so many dividends later. And it was hard. I mean, I love it. I love sharing it. And I love this dynamic between you two as well. Like you guys should easily go have your own podcast series as well, because I would listen to you all day long talking about these kinds of things. I want to then kind of wrap it up with my final question, and I'll leave it to you too as to how you want to answer it. But first off, thank you so much for joining me today. Final question, where can we go find out about the book? Where can we find you guys? Twitter, Instagram, whatever one of these places where you're out telling people your story, telling people about the book. Where can they learn more about you guys
2: and the paths that you are on? I'm J Unit one hundred everywhere. J Y U N I T one zero zero on Twitter, GitHub, LinkedIn, whatever.
0: J Unit one hundred. I love it. Chris, how about you?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I'm Chris Love.
1: CNM Charlie Nancy Michaels is the so just CNM is the last three letters on it as a play on the previous company I was with. So in terms of the book, uh, we've got a link shortener for it. It's bit.ly so bit.ly forward slash core hyphen Kubernetes. Definitely pick it up there. It's in Meep right now. Hopefully by the time of this podcast, we'll have more than two chapters out. Where we did the opposite way of coming to Manning. We Came to Manning with about 20 chapters. Uh, just a note: you can probably write, you know, one or two chapters, and then write a, you know, table of contents and work with Manning on, or another publisher on a proposal. So definitely don't look at writing the full book before you go to a publisher because they're definitely there to help you. But yeah, reach out you know to us on Twitter. That's where I'm very active, as well as LinkedIn. Both Jay and I are on that, and GitHub. we we use all the same handles everywhere, which is kind of the thing to do.
0: That's fantastic. Chris J, will will be sure to link up all your profiles as well as the bit.ly uh, link in the show notes. Again, that's bit.ly slash, was it core dash Kubernetes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, core hyphen Kubernetes. Awesome. We will be sure to, to link those up. Chris J, thank you so much for joining me today. We probably could do another three episodes both on careers and on Kubernetes. But in the interest of time, I want to let you both get back to your day. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, as always, to our listeners for taking the time to listen. If you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app is. You can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes as well as find other content on careers and technology. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. If you have any feedback on this episode or any episode, or you'd like to be a guest, drop us an email at podcasts at developmentor.com. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move that one step closer to finding your path.